Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to Mugshot. I'm your host, Lindsay. This episode of Mugshot was co-created by Abby Martin, who assisted with research and writing. Today's Mugshot. Name, David Friedland. Arrested for racketeering, income tax evasion, and obstruction of justice. Everyone has a bad day where, in the most hectic and aggravating moment, the fantasy of a do-over seems like a satisfying and reasonable solution. Maybe that do-over looks like going back in time to the moment the alarm clock woke you and just deciding to stay in bed. Still others imagine telling your boss and all of the sundry coworkers that you're quitting and just what they can do with this job. But it's all just a wish, and the day carries on. Occasionally, though, some may try and make it a reality. For New Jersey State Senator David Friedland, it seemed like the only answer was to fake his own death and start from scratch. His crimes and the looming punishments, in his mind, were more than his current life was worth. To understand the quandary David Friedland found himself in during the early 1980s, a great place to start is with his resume, how he got started, and his downfall. The native New Jerseyan showed great potential and graduated from Tufts University in 1957, Rutgers in 1960, and by the age of 24 in 1961, he was a fully qualified member of the New Jersey Bar Association, working alongside his father Jacob at the same law firm. The general public grew to admire the charismatically dressed lawyer who had an encyclopedic knowledge of the most obscure laws and legal loopholes hidden within. The law firm that the Friedland team manned also found themselves writing the coattails of a recently overturned case by the Supreme Court of Alabama. A landmark case of Reynolds v. Sims in Alabama had recently determined that counties with a larger population should be permitted more than one representative in the state Senate. This was coined as one person, one vote, to ensure that larger counties were represented as equally as smaller counties. In a nutshell, the presiding Judge Warren stated, quote, Legislators represent people, not trees or acres. Legislators are elected by voters, not farms or cities or economic interests, end quote. Friedland had been monitoring this case closely, and as soon as the decision had been handed down, both men began to search out for clients who may have an interest in rectifying the similar laws in New Jersey. David Friedland and his team were soon in front of the New Jersey Superior Court arguing on behalf of the Laundry Workers' Union and Paper Box Workers' Union, among others, for a similar one-person, one-vote setup. 
and the New Jersey court deemed it constitutional based on the original case precedent set in Alabama. This was a huge win, not only for their clients, but for the lawyers as well. They were perfectly positioned in a positive light and had no trouble bringing in their fair share of new cases. Again, David Friedland found himself adored by the public, the champion of the average citizen, looking out for the rights of the masses. Not to mention, he was good-looking, having an all-over tan from his passion for diving in exotic locales. He was charming, had a beautiful wife, two children, and he was smart as a whip. Clients flocked to the father-son team for representation. With time, they began to specialize in representing workers' unions, including a truckers' or more commonly known as Teamsters' union, known as Teamsters Local 701. With the practice on solid ground, David Friedland then ran for New Jersey General Assembly and was elected in 1966, a position he held until 1974. Things were clearly going well for Friedland, who was consistently growing in popularity and intended to continue. While keeping his outward appearance and rapport with the voters, Friedland began to clear any obstacles that he felt stood between him and his goals. If that meant selling out or betraying a fellow member of the General Assembly or other more minor dignitaries, that was fine with him. He would have his way, and he would come out smelling like a rose to any outsider who might be casting a vote for him in the future. He was, after all, a champion of the people. Somebody willing to cross party lines if it meant getting the job done and getting it done while putting his name at the forefront of whatever it was. But it wasn't always roses. Scrutiny befell Friedland as whispers of organized crime associations came about. Somewhere along the way, whether it was his charisma or his determination, Friedland became the man that was called in to smooth things over and help criminals like loan sharks avoid charges or prosecution altogether. But for an elected official, this can cause problems. In late 1970, the attention of the New Jersey State Police was drawn to Friedland's connection with a well-known mafia loan shark, John DeGilio. It seems that this constituent had found himself in trouble with the law and had been pressuring or persuading David Friedland to get the charges dropped. Friedland, in turn, used his political clout to offer monetary payoffs, acting as courier for DeGilio. In return, all charges and malfeasance would be forgotten. By the following February, the lifelong politician was found guilty of ethical violations by the state Supreme Court and faced a suspension from the New Jersey State Bar and possible revocation of his license to practice law altogether. Ultimately, the court deemed that his license to practice would be revoked for six months. Many considered this decision to be a merciful ruling, considering that his ethics had been highly compromised. In a manner that bordered on cliché, Friedland continued to tout his innocence to anyone with ears swearing that he would run again, this time for the Senate. He was a golden boy that had been wrongly accused by the jealous. There was no need for voters to worry. He would be back and doing good work after the following election. In 1978, 
he fulfilled his promise to run for Senate, and he was successful mostly in part because his opponent was largely unknown to the populace. The next blow for the politician was the dissolution of his marriage. Not only did he lose his marriage, but during a heated custody battle, Mrs. Carol Friedland insisted that extensive abuse of LSD had damaged Friedland's mind and caused him to unpredictably fall into hallucinations. On top of that, he had been misappropriating funds from at least one of the union pension funds he and his father handled. While not much of the outcome of this hearing is known, the seed had been planted irretrievably in more than one mind. Needless to say, Friedland had some making up to do. Some tracks to cover to rekindle his relationship with the community. Taking small steps to broker power for himself versus the Democrat Party he belonged to or the Republican Party he was often pitted against, David began a long political career of quid pro quo that was not limited to his colleagues at the state Senate. If you're not from the United States, it's important to note that in many, many cases, allegiance to party is somewhat of a given. If you break from your party, it could be career suicide. But David was ready to play the game. In the early 70s, for example, Friedland voted against his Democrat allies in order to give the Republicans control of the General Assembly. Now, this was not out of the goodness of his heart, although he saved his skin by insisting that the Democrats were not serving the best interests of the voters they represented. The Democratic Party argued back, stating, quote, Jesus Christ had his Judas. The Democrats now have their David Friedland. But why did he do it? In reality, the Republicans had promised and granted David a new position as chairman of a bipartisan committee. His own party thought he brought too much baggage and nominated instead a man who would have been the first African-American to hold the position, S. Howard Woodson. This committee had been overlooked up to this point, which worked in Friedland's favor as he made the entire focus about shifting bills either to be killed or passed based on his interest alone. His best and most often used technique was to find loopholes in pre-existing laws that would render the proposed bill null and void. He continued to be known as Judas to his own party, voting for reinstatement of the death penalty for first-degree murder. At this point, in 1978, the New Jersey Assembly was leaning in favor of the Democrats, so it only took David and three others to sway in favor of this ruling, to allow the Republican-endorsed bill to pass. But this move ended up being David Friedland's last notable political gambit. You may think it was due to his partisan treason, but it was because his mismanagement of the Teamster Pension Fund had come to light. Although it happened before this election, when paired with his other known questionable decisions, there were just too many questions about his character. Both Friedland men, father and son, were arrested after authorities discovered that they had received a $360,000 bribe from a man named Barry Marlin, a known con man who had more than one scheme operating at the time. He used this monetary incentive to convince the two lawyers to bring in new clients. 
they would use their sway with the union to encourage members to invest with him. If they'd loan him $4 million, he would take the money and reinvest in various ventures that would return a large profit. Problem was, they were all non-existent ventures. By the time the misdeeds of the Friedland men came to surface, Marlin was already in prison in California for stealing from a pilot's pension fund and a similar scheme but on a grander scale. The state of New Jersey and the FBI quickly jumped on the chance to have Marlin provide evidence against the father-son team to ensure they wouldn't slide out of these charges. David Friedland's public image was crumbling in plain view of the media and therefore the public. Adding fuel to the fire were Friedland's frequent laissez-faire diving trips. Public opinion suggested he should not have been relaxing on vacation while the pensions of the people he represented were at risk. The frenzy that ensued painted him as a petty thief who stole from those hardworking truckers who entrusted him to speak on their behalf in court. Additionally, he was receiving pressure to step down altogether from his Senate seat, something he adamantly refused to do, first on the grounds that he was innocent and later on the grounds that he shouldn't be forced to resign from a current seat over something that allegedly happened years before his election. But the trial did not drag out as long as you might think, lasting just under a month. The jury heard every bit of financial evidence to incriminate the men forever. The biggest linchpin in the testimonies had been delivered by Marlin himself, who arranged with authorities to reduce his current sentence in exchange for testimony that would prove the men's guilt. It was a good deal for Marlin, who was originally sentenced to 10 years. His testimony freed him after only two years and placed him in a comfortable witness protection program relocation. After the April 11, 1980 ruling, both lawyers were disbarred permanently. In a move to control the damage to his reputation and career, David Friedland announced that he was resigning, not stepping down, in order to focus fully on the legal battle for his appeal. A special election was held to fill his seat. In a move that was predictable to most and parallel with all of his political dealings, David Friedland struck a deal with the U.S. Attorney's Office. He knew things they needed to know. If they would let him avoid prison time, he would be able to give information to bring down some dirty politicians and other big fish. All he asked to not spend a minute behind bars. The senior Friedland was also able to avoid jail time as the judge ruled that he was too frail and too aged to serve his two-year sentence. This turned out to be a fair observation on the part of the judge because Jacob Friedland died shortly afterward in August of 1985. Meanwhile, the attorney general granted Friedland a job with a mortgage company while he spilled secrets about the powerful and corrupt of New Jersey. Fifty individuals of both political parties were incriminated by the testimony of Freeland, but as far as the records show, only one case from this information made it before the courts. Mayor Wally Lindsley of Weehawken, New Jersey, Freeland, and another disbarred lawyer by the name of Richard Kaplan had been scheming prior to Freeland's conviction. 
Their plan was to take advantage of the sudden economic slump and vacancies on the shoreline in Weehawken by placing members into the Port Authority that would be sure to solely approve their proposals. The men would then be able to extort bribes out of helpful businesses wanting to develop along the waterfront. To catch him, David agreed to wear a wire to assist the FBI and captured enough evidence to convict. And they discovered that the mayor was considering hiring someone to murder Kaplan, who was becoming a liability at that point. The help that Friedland provided was enough to put the corrupt mayor behind bars for three and a half years, significantly less than anticipated as the threats of murder were dismissed as fanciful jocularities. It was shortly after David contributed to this conviction that he experienced the last straw. His father and literal partner in crime had passed on. This caused Friedland to assess his options. He really didn't want to keep going as an informant, and truthfully, it would be unlikely that anyone would include him on backroom dealings after the Lindsley case. He certainly didn't want to go to prison, and if he backed out on his deal, that's certainly where he would find himself. In his mind, his best option was to completely start over. And the only way to do that? Fake his death. So how exactly does someone just wipe away all signs of their existence? It seems complicated. And maybe it is. Before we continue, let's take a quick break. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back from the break. When we left off, David Friedland had come to the harsh realization that he was going to have to start over. And when he did, no one could know. To start over, though, he needed money. He did have some assets left after his legal battles, but it wasn't enough. It was a start, but to seamlessly disappear, he'd have to relocate, but still have a means to supply his basic needs. Then, when reflecting on how he got to such a dark place, it hit him. He knew exactly where there were large sums of money just waiting to be used. The Teamsters 701 union was about to unwillingly bankroll the death and afterlife of their previous aggressor. And it would be done using a strategy he had seen before. By day, Friedland kept up his average routine of going to work at the mortgage company. 
but he began to devise ways he could use his hidden assets to access the Teamsters pension fund. Ultimately, he decided that he would use his hidden investment business out of Florida called Omni Funding Group. First, he needed to get word to the Teamster Union that his Fort Lauderdale-based company was looking for investors, and it needed to be as circuitous as possible. He chose to have another former assemblyman, Joseph Higgins, to represent Omni. Higgins was to present the offer, an offer he had tailored and offered only to them. It was delivered via express mail and was, to put it plainly, too good to pass up. The union quickly contacted Higgins and signed on with a stout $20 million. Friedland did actually invest the money, but the interest it gained, that was all his. He was able to pad his offshore bank account the authorities had not uncovered with about $750,000. Additionally, Friedland mapped out his death carefully, right down to who would be with him at the pivotal moment. The next step was to pay someone to create at least two new potential identities to use, which can be expensive. Usually, when someone is hired to perform an illegal task, they won't do it for just chump change. Their whole life is on the line. But it was a price the disgraced attorney was willing to pay. The names, backgrounds, histories, and even fake financial trails were created. The information of a previously deceased man was also purchased. Then it was time to move to the next step of his plan. But it had to be at a precise moment. This trigger was heralded by a chain reaction of suspicion on the part of the Teamsters Union. On a whim, or maybe with a bit of an uneasy feeling over time, the trustees asked a financial administrator to dig into the background of the face of Omni Investments. Upon closer examination, the union discovered that Higgins was not the financial whiz that he appeared to be. In fact, as it turns out, he had declared bankruptcy twice, and beyond Higgins, Omni was particularly shrouded in secrecy as to who else was part of the company. Higgins couldn't be the only one running such an operation, but no other people could be found. This was when Friedland decided it was time to liquidate holdings of the financial group. He was washing his hands of the company, which of course drew the attention of not only the union, but the government. The union began a lawsuit to regain their lost millions. This was it, the moment he had been planning for. David needed to leave before further scrutiny made it impossible to do so. Friedland publicly boarded a flight to the Bahamas with no protest from the authorities. Had he waited much longer, it's quite possible that they would not have committed this mistake. But by September 2, 1985, Friedland and a friend by the name of Jack Wynn decided spur of the moment to spend Labor Day fishing for lobsters. Wynn and Friedland boated out to the drop-off where the shallows of Sandy Key sit off of the shoreline. Friedland had not told Wynn that he was planning to disappear, as the event had to seem as authentic as possible. He proceeded to make a show of aches and pains, mentioning that he needed another dose of prescription painkillers, which he swallowed. Then he put on his gear. David would dive first while Wynn manned the boat. 
taking a large lobster bag when presumed was empty and ready to be used, Friedland took to the seas, leaving behind his own boat, companion, and the legal troubles of his old life. Wynne was surprised as he watched alternatingly between the water surface and his watch. Surely David was running out of air. The tank he left with only had about 40 minutes of oxygen. It had been way more than that. He hoped his friend hadn't encountered too much pain or suffered a poor reaction to his medication. The fear and anticipation became too much, and Wynne made the call to authorities who would conduct an official search. David Friedland was gone. He had surely drowned. They were so far out it was impossible that he swam to shore, and he certainly didn't get back on the boat. Right? But where was his body? There should have been some sign of him somewhere. You don't just drown and disappear. His plan had been executed perfectly. But how did he pull it off? Well, no one had anticipated that Friedland had pre-planned his Labor Day to include oxygen tanks hidden within the ocean reef, which got him far enough away from the dive site that he was able to hop onto a second boat where he had hired a man to pick him up. This local boatman was under the impression he was transporting a gentleman by the name of Ianis Stogios. This was not simply an alias, but an actual person who had died some years before, whose identity Friedland had purchased and tucked away for such an occasion. And what about the lobster bag? It held a waterproof briefcase packed with about $32,000, seed money for his death. Quickly cleaning up and changing his appearance, he was then able to board a flight to Greece, where, not by complete happenstance, his girlfriend, Colette Golightly, was waiting. Meanwhile, investigators were suspicious, and some back home weren't buying it. Friedland had burned a lot of bridges, and some of those he had scorned were waiting to strike back. Critics of Friedland, such as the now-convicted mayor, Wally Lindsley, quickly made it known that they weren't surprised this had happened. Some insisted they had even tried on multiple instances to make it known that Friedland might do such a bunk. Plus, with him now on the cusp of more legal trouble after stealing from the Union, he had more motivation to actually make it happen. Now it all made more sense. The authorities had been duped. They had to find this guy. But Friedland was free. Perhaps out of the philosophy, they can't catch me if I don't slow down, Friedland began trotting the globe. He visited Switzerland, Paris, New York City, Costa Rica, Rome, back and forth around the Maldives, Singapore, and other locations, always one step ahead of the authorities. Having zigzagged enough to confuse any possible leads the authorities might have, Friedland and Friedland and Colette Golightly returned to the Maldives using a Costa Rican passport. By this point, in March of 1986, Interpol had issued a red notice for Friedland, and he was listed on the U.S. Marshals' 15 Most Wanted Fugitives list. Friedland began to build a life and career on his island. 
Assessing what he felt he was good at, aside from politics and the law, he decided to become a dive instructor for the tourists visiting the Maldives. Singapore was just a hop, skip, and jump away for him and was where he was able to obtain deeply discounted gear for his business. In true Friedland fashion, he started out with one dive shop and built it up into a small franchise. But then, another opportunity presented itself. The locals were, according to Friedland later on, impoverished and without basic medical care. He saw an opportunity to, quote-unquote, improve their lives, and he took it. A doctor who was vacationing and taking advantage of Friedland's services taught him some basic medical techniques, which he could then avail for the needy. He also claims that he shared the wealth by encouraging visitors to the area to visit local establishments, helping to stimulate the local economy. Most of the islanders knew him as Richard Harley, who lived in a chalet near the beach with his beautiful girlfriend Colette. But of course, if you're trying to stay below the radar, there are a few things you should be cautious about not doing. One is admitting you're alive after going through great trouble to fake your death. You should never, for instance, record a cassette tape admitting what you've done and then send it to your attorney. This is exactly what happened in November of 1985 shortly after his disappearance, although for reasons unknown. Perhaps since he didn't disclose his location, he was confident he'd never be found. But it's also ill-advised to then travel elsewhere and meet up with a reporter to give a more detailed interview, even if you return to your undisclosed location right after. And perhaps most cardinal of all, if you are known to be an excellent scuba diver who seemed to have apparently died scuba diving, don't open a scuba and dive shop. Oh, and maybe also don't pose for postcards. Actually, Friedland's enterprising nature is what, in the end, is likely to have raised red flags. He was stepping on the toes of other proprietors, and in an effort to rid themselves of the interloper, other dive shop owners began to question who Richard Harley really was. Coincidentally, and unfortunately for Friedland, the island government was on the lookout for a hitman with a similar name. After discovering someone with almost the same name was wanted, Friedland's embittered competitors made a call to authorities that the killer for hire might just be nearby. Word got around, as did everyone knowing that Friedland was, indeed, still alive as they had suspected. It wasn't too hard to connect all the dots. On December 12, 1987 in Malé, authorities arrested Friedland. This is where Friedland's story shows certain signs of embellishment. According to him, he was captured and held in conditions that were not fit for humans. He was beaten, tortured, and fed sparingly, and what he was offered was so rotten that there were maggots crawling through it. In an effort to get the truth from him, Friedland claims that his captors drugged him. Truthfully, it took some time to dig down through the lies and aliases to discover the man was not a true dive instructor, nor a mercenary, but a con man wanted in the United States for fraud and theft. 
But by all accounts, according to the federal marshals and other witnesses, Friedland was, in all ways, healthy and cared for when they arrived to extradite him home. This was the end of the line for Friedland, who had been hoping to evade capture just long enough to be outside of the statutes of limitation, if not very old when found. His time hiding from the law totaled just two years, far from what he had been hoping. The days of swimming and taking tourists through the Indian Ocean were over. Both Friedland and his lawyers agreed that the sensible tack after such an inflated overreaction on his part was to simply admit 100% of the guilt on every charge they put in front of him and beg for leniency later. So, just two days after returning to the United States, he began serving that original sentence from his original scheme with his father, the one he had sweet-talked himself out of. The following January, Friedland found himself before an unsympathetic judge while the prosecution detailed that in addition to his fake death and racketeering crimes, Friedland had been trying to seek asylum with some of America's most hated enemies, including Libya's al-Gaddafi. Additional RICO violations landed him a total concurrent sentence of 15 years, with the opportunity of parole in 40 to 58 months. While waiting for his first opportunity for parole, Friedland got to work by improving the conditions for his fellow inmates. Claiming to reporters that he was disturbed by how difficult it was for detainees to have official visits and contact their lawyers and other representatives, he began a process that would hopefully streamline and remedy the long waits. Additionally, noticing that there were large gaps in the prison system's legal library with outdated material and some missing altogether, he contacted various sympathetic individuals who were willing to donate to this cause as well. Friedland made a good show of ingratiating himself with as many guards and inmates as possible, but his motives were not difficult to see through. If he wanted to make parole, he needed to be a good boy, and David was smart, a calculated man. In an interview with a reporter as he was in prison awaiting parole, Friedland said, quote, You sit and you meditate on how your troubles came about. It doesn't take much to realize that if you had followed the Ten Commandments, you wouldn't be in prison. End quote. To really drive his point home, he also had his legal team contact the U.S. Attorney's Office. He was willing to make himself useful as an incarcerated member of the prison system. He could broker information on illegal activities happening within and out of prison. A letter of reply was received stating that they were happy to receive any legitimate information, but that they were not willing to make a deal with him. The word was out. Friedland was a slippery customer, not to be trusted. Nearly the same series of events followed when he took his offer to the DEA regarding narcotics. His efforts were not met with the parole Friedland had hoped for, so he began to protest his continued incarceration by claiming that the parole board had abused its discretion. The tit-for-tat volley between the board and Friedland's people escalated and ended with this quote from the board. 
we recognize that Friedland's institutional conduct superficially supports his application for parole. Yet in some respects, that very conduct is disturbing. After his initial convictions, he manipulated the government so that he could stay out of prison and commit a further crime. He then faked his own death in an attempt to avoid apprehension. Friedland's conduct in prison, the procuring of information from other inmates for his own benefit, is consistent with his prior manipulative conduct. Furthermore, his efforts to circumvent the authority of the United States Attorney in New Jersey demonstrate that his manipulative character has not changed. By any standard, Friedland, though undoubtedly highly intelligent, is a cunning, manipulative individual, scornful of society's constraints. The powers that be were determined to make an example of Friedland. He had used every possible means to evade the consequences of his own illegal actions. He made the government look foolish, held up none of his end of the bargain, and simultaneously committed additional crimes, not to mention the valuable resources that were poured into locating his whereabouts. He would not be getting out of prison until the example had been made, the message received loud and clear. By January of 1997, after serving nine and a half years, Friedland found himself not in a prison cell, but in a halfway house, where after another six months, he was a free man having paid his debt to society. At the age of 83 this December of 2020, Friedland has devoted his life post-prison to preventing the destruction of the world and turned his attention towards preserving and repairing the Earth's environment. But even if he were to personally stop the destruction of our planet, it's likely that he will still be remembered as the senator who faked his own death. That concludes this episode of Mugshot. My writers and I are working hard to get episodes out to you as often as we can to make up for some of the time off. We'll be back on our bi-weekly Monday schedule, but we're releasing episodes early when possible. Thank you so much for your patience as we've all been navigating this new world together. Follow Mugshot on all social media outlets at the handle at MugshotPod or send an email to MugshotPod at Yahoo.com. Until next time, stay out of trouble, or you may end up pictured in your very own Mugshot. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.